Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today I have as my guest a friend and colleague, Michael Marinello. He is the Chief Communications Officer for Aon, the multinational but British American financial services firm. We got to know each other first when we worked on the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign, and then our paths crossed again more recently this summer at a corporate communications executive retreat. And at that point, I also learned something I never knew before, which is he's a rock and roll star himself. So welcome to the caring economy, Mike Marinello. Thanks, Toby. It's great to be here. And uh, I thought you knew that, but you know, I'm glad I'm glad we we're able to uncover that and and bring it, you know, bring it to light so that you now know and can appreciate it. Well, there's so much that we had to absorb back in the day on the campaign. So maybe I did know it, but I'm glad to be reminded of it. And also you went to Lehigh, which we'll talk about today. But first, we always ask our guests to just give us sort of like the two minute digest of their lives, where they were born, where they grew up, how they were raised, how they got where they got. Uh, you tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, so I was born in Jackson Heights, Queens, actually the only member of my family on my dad's side and on my mother's side as well that was not born in the same hospital in Brooklyn. So I think I was born to do different things, period, right? I was the only person in my family on both sides, cousins, aunts, uncles, who weren't born in the same hospital in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, so Jackson Heights, Queens, I think a big changing point in my life was when my parents decided but the time of I was about five years old we moved to um, the suburbs we moved to a town called Milburn Short Hills New Jersey mm-hmm. and I, I don't think you can get further away from Jackson Heights Queens and Milburn Short Hills but I didn't know that as a kid and I just knew that it was not the city anymore and I grew up in this amazing community with this amazing group of people and I was just exposed to so much that I just thought every kid was I just didn't I, I thought every town was Milburn and I thought every town was Short Hills. And it was, you know, you find out later when you go to college that that's not the case, but I was just lucky. And I mean it in many ways, meaning that, you know, we were a bedroom community of New York. And so, you know, you know, my friend's dads were the head of American Express and, you know, the head of EF Hutton and things of that nature. And I just thought that everyone's, you know, that's, but I also had friends whose dads were the chief of police and chief of fire. And so like, we just were this, great mix of, of, of people and everyone, you know, it was just a great time to grow up and a great place to grow up. But I just, you know, it was, it, I got exposed to so much just from a sense of like, it was an idyllic Mayberry like community where to this day, my graduating class was 300 people. And I would say 250 of us stay in close contact on a regular basis, thanks to social media, just to keep in touch, have a community, see how everyone's doing. Um, and it's, it was that kind of experience. Went through the school system there. My dad, was an executive in Manhattan in the insurance finance world. And my mom was actually, which was a huge influence for me. She was a teacher in the school system in town. And I remember thinking the one thing that always stuck out with me, there was everyone thought it was odd that my mom worked and she just did it because she loved teaching and she was born to be a teacher. And there was no like anything else other than that. And it was fun to have her be a teacher in the community because one, she was known, but then two, I sort of had this, you know, I sort of had this, you know, watchcloth over the over my tower. So I would say growing up, the two biggest influences in my life were that my mom being a teacher and being a part of the community and had a brother who was four years older than me, who was pretty much just this unique you know, blend of amazing athlete and ridiculously smart guy. And while plowing a path for me, um, also cast a shadow and it actually yeah 
at a very early age made me realize I had to find my own path mm -hmm. somewhere else because everyone was always just expecting me to either be or do what he did. And it wasn't him. Obviously, the beauty, the beauty of that was that it wasn't coming from him or my family. So I never felt the burden of like what some people might feel of like growing up under the shadow of someone. I just knew like just from expectations and such that I was going to have to grow my own path. Um, but lesson one was my brother went to Lehigh and so did I. So it took me a while. We you know, went from Milburn to Lehigh, started, I, we were talking about it before, but you know, I, I went to Lehigh because I wanted to be an architect and Lehigh is an engineering school, or at least was back then. It's really an engineering and business school. It's pretty much a multifaceted university right now, but then it was primarily, I mean, we were even called the Lehigh engineers. Well, that was you, our nickname. My brother, who I followed, went to Lehigh. I almost yeah. went to Lehigh, so yeah. I had a well, chat thing going on as well. We used to joke about, you know, striking fear into the heart of our opponents because the mascot was this guy surveying land. Like, how? It wasn't even a train engineer or anything. Even, it was a guy surveying Never. land. Like, yeah, how, how intimidating could that be? I, that's why I went to Lehigh because, you know, I wanted to be an architect and wanted to go to an engineering school where the path was much more direct. You know, I think there's like a five-year apprenticeship expectation after you graduate. But once you get out of Lehigh, you're really sort of on your way. So that's why I went there, but it didn't work out. And um, two years, about a year into it, I pivoted into international relations. And I think that sort of was, again, another turning point for me where I found something that I was really good at. And I remember talking to a professor who said, who said to me, you know, you should pursue international relations. You're really good at it. And I was like, you can do that? You can actually do <laughs> this is something right, right? you don't have to do something that's going to make sure that when you get out you get a job like you can actually study something you're really good at or interested in so that was you know that was really interesting point for me so yeah so I went to lehigh um got out like everyone else got into finance because that's what everyone was doing at the time and i hated it about two years into doing finance decided i wanted to go into i wanted to go to washington dc and there's a whole backstory so I will, you can ask me about like how i got there but i went from i went from finance to washington dc Spent seven years in the Senate, and then I was off to the races. So I'll stop there. Yeah. So a couple of follow-up questions, and I say this somewhat form way. My ex was Italian Catholic guy, born in Brooklyn, raised in Staten Island. And I wonder, with the last name Marinello, is Italian culture an important part of your upbringing? Yeah, it was, but it was more like being an Italian in America. We didn't feel like connected to Italy, but it was like, what was the Italian American experience? My grandfather, my dad's dad, um, was a first-generation immigrant from. Sicily and he was the uh, chief law clerk for the Supreme Court of New York for 25 years wow and his wife my grandmother was a woman suffragist and I still have a picture I still have the picture of her on the front time front page of the New York Times lobbying for the women's right to vote and picketing so you see my political background <laughs> <can't be his laughs> yeah. genetic. culturally Italian American growing up as an Italian American was hugely influential but it was not about Italy it was about right. the immigrant experience. Right. Yeah. And it right. was almost and so, assimilated as well. Like, you know, you right. And it was about, yeah, it was about family. It was about something bigger than yourself. I think I always look back at this, but one of the most impactful thing for me was being brought up, and I mean this in the best way, by a, a group of strong women. Mm -hmm. I think that was just an amazing, I feel amazingly lucky to yeah. have been brought up by a group of strong women where, you know, it, you know, always, and I know this sounds silly, but like, when you think about our generation and how many issues, you know, with male and female and, you know, gender and all that other stuff, I just never grew up with this sense that one was different than the other. Everyone had their role. I was always, you know, yeah. so it was really interesting uh, for me. Yeah. And I was the youngest cousin. So 
I had all women cousins yeah. on both sides. And I had all, you know, except for one, I had one male cousin and I had all, you know, my aunts were all, um, you know, successful. My, and my grandmother was, so it was just this very interesting part of, and it was an Italian American thing. So, you know, they were also, when you think about it, they were breaking out of the stereotype. Sure. You know, of course. They were breaking out of the stereotype. So it was fun to watch them be strong, not just as women in society, but in the family. Yeah. And having a, and having a leading point of view, so that yeah. those are really that was really informative for me. That would definitely seem consistent with my my ex's family and others I know. <laughs> um, and then another part, I, I I don't know if it starts before Lehigh or during Lehigh. I spent a lot of time on Fraternity Row there, as you did when we were uh, both applying the rock and roll part of your life. Tell us a little bit about that because that's pretty awe inspiring. <laughs> Yeah, so thanks for it. Well, so it's interesting. So my dad, besides being successful businessman, was also a big band jazz drummer. And so he was the house drummer at the Latin Quarter, if, if you remember the Latin Quarter, which was a, sort of the peer to the Copacabana back in the day. And, mm-hmm. and so my drumming comes from him. And there was always drums in the house. I remember even when we were in the apartment in Jackson Heights, there was always a practice pad. And there's a picture of me at four years old playing the drums. And I just picked up the drums naturally, never really took a lesson. It was around the time of, I think we were by junior year in high school, a bunch of friends of I were like, you know, what's a great way to get girls to talk to you if you're sort of awkward? And we're like, be a rock band. Like, let's get a rock band <laughs> together. Because so uh, we did. We just for the fun of it. And God bless my dad. Um, we had the drum set in the basement and, you know, he would let the guys come and play. And we started out um, just doing it for fun. And then I remember a friend of mine came over and he heard us play like we do five songs. And he was a guy who always had like the party at his house, right? And we'd always have a basement. He said, you guys have to come and play in the basement one night. And we're like, no. And that's how it started. Our friend just said, and by the way, we played five songs. We played a five song set three times for the same crowd. And they got more and more excited each time because we got better and better each time. And that's how it all started. And then the friend, my friend who was the lead singer, a guy named Jimmy White, who was brilliant brilliant guy is a brilliant guy was a great athlete wound up going to Dartmouth but um when we reconvened in the city we had so we had a very successful high school band career uh our band was really big we started to play big parties we got you know well it was funny well everyone went the path of like Van Halen and Led Zeppelin we decided we were going to be opposite so we went the way of the police and Genesis and Tom Petty and the stray cats and the doors and we were playing and so we were this unique different band squeeze and um and we so it started there and then when jim and i reunited after college um although it was funny i would go up to dartmouth and we would jump in and play at like a fraternity party or something yeah we'd sit in and we'd play and we'd, we'd do our songs and knock the place out and we had a lot of fun when we got out of college we were both you know we were living together in the city and we decided we'd start a band started a band with this group called the Off Wall Street Jam, which was a management firm that was trying to find people who had, who were like businessmen by day and musicians at night. And so they would book us in clubs and all this other stuff. And it just took off. It was, we, we, uh, we were an incredible, you know, they put us together with musicians. We became a cover band there. You know, we were like, I'm dating myself, but we were on WNEW FM as sort of like they had us on, they played, they, we, they had us play at festivals. We would do, so yeah, it just sort of snowballed, but it was something that we, that, you know, started because my friend, you know, b- back when we were 15 years old, my friend and I in the cafeteria decided we were going to come up with this idea. What's the name of the band now? God, there's been so many different permutations and Jim no longer sings and I'm in a whole other 
world, although it's with some of those guys I met back when Jim and I started. Actually, the guitar player and I knew one of my current guitar players' friends is the guitar player that was playing with us way back then. Um, but um, it's called Daughters and Dissidents. And that's a whole other story about how we became a Pearl Jam cover band. Which So we have two we have two residencies, if you will. We play at Arlene's Grocery in the city and we play at a place called Connolly's in, in Times Square. Um, and that's where actually the Bloomberg campaign team came to see us. But my past, like we did like in my, the first permutation, like we were on MTV. Um, we were back when we, there was a club called the Lone Star Roadhouse that we were the opening act. Let's use that as a, to go back to the, the day job. How did you find, or how do you keep a balance between this uh, passion, this hobby of yours and your day job? Well, you know what? It, well, it goes back to when I was 19. You know how record labels put bands together. They find different musicians and they push you together, see if you're any good and you do a demo and then see where it goes. And so I was, it, I, I did um, a different friend of mine who was a singer got me involved in this project for CBS records. <clears throat> and we did a, we, we spent an entire, <clears throat> entire day doing a demo tape with, it was me and him. And then these three other guys who I'd never met before, all really phenomenal musicians and we sounded incredible but it was something out of a bad movie where like in between takes the lead guitar player who called himself the king was going into the bathroom and doing drugs with these two models and he'd come out and he'd do it and I was just like and what should have taken an hour took eight hours okay. and I just remember packing up my stuff and saying I want nothing to do with this as a career if this is what it's going to be like I'm out you know I went happily back to college and you know, another, another semester of football. And I was like, I'm fine. I don't want to be a rock star. So I made a conscious decision that it was always, I loved it enough that I was always going to do it, yeah. but I would never wanted to ever do it to have to rely on because then I would hate it as a, right. And so I sort of saw that balance where yep. this is always going to be my passion and never going to be my occupation. Got it. So, so stick with the, the occupation then. You go down to Washington, you're working on the Hill, and then eventually you make your way into the private sector. I think you were working uh, originally somehow with Mike's foundation, setting that up. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, so I was seven years. So here's what's interesting. So, so seven years in the Senate and how I got into press was I started as a legislative guy, but I was working for Pat Moynihan, a guy named Kevin Cheeky. Kevin was working there and he saw that I had this interest and talent for writing and talking, as you can tell. And he drafted me into Pat's press office as part of my work. And then I just realized like I was really good at this and I wanted to do this. And so that's how the press and sort of PR and branding yeah. comms thing took off. But uh, my first job off of the Hill was actually consulting for Microsoft on their antitrust case. Then I took a, then I took a role I was like, no, I'm done with, I, I understood what it was like to be a consultant, liked it, but I was sort of done with DC. So I went, I wound up going to work for Gray Advertising and starting, a, they had a PR firm called GCI and they had me start a government affairs and crisis practice. Mm -hmm. So that's, so it was great because I did, I got to learn how to be an entrepreneur and a businessman while doing something I liked within a large organization. Yeah. So then I did Gray. And then what happened was a client of mine hired me to leave Gray and go start global PR for them. It was a, it was a med tech firm called Beckton Dickinson. Mm -hmm. And then almost like six years to the day, I got a call from Microsoft from the same guys I'd been consulting with. And they said, we have a job for you. We want you to come move to Seattle. So Left and it was uh, with Brad Smith, who was the general counsel, who's now the president of Microsoft. But it was with him working on intellectual property. So that got me to Seattle. And then 
about four years into it, I was having back in New York and I was having coffee with Kevin, who we'd stayed in touch over the over years, friends. I'd done a lot of stuff. I'd worked, I'd volunteered on Mike's two mayoral campaigns prior. And I'd done a lot of stuff. So it wasn't completely out of the blue. And Kevin and I had always stayed in touch. Actually, even when Mike came to Microsoft, I led the tour for him. I set it up and I was his tour guide and we went around Microsoft. And so always had been connected. But I was having coffee with Kevin one day. He had just left City Hall. And he said, I have a job for you. And he said, Mike's starting a foundation and we want you to come join us and, you know, launch it, run comms and all. So that's how I got to Mike's. Got it. Uh, that's how I got there. Um, I mean, you talk about Moynihan and uh, Microsoft and uh, Kevin Sheiky, who's a great executive in the Bloomberg Empire to this day. Uh, what can you say about leadership that you, you've, in my view, you've chosen great leaders to hook your caboose to and uh -huh. are a leader yourself, but uh, any reflections on leadership or how you used your noggin to choose the really credible ones, the successful ones for the long haul? Yeah, I think what, what, what I learned from Moynihan was be forever intellectual curious, right? And always learn something and always know that you can help others learn. If you, if you, took, if you looked at what Pat Moynihan did and you ascribed a business and numbers to it, that's what he was. He was an entrepreneur, but it was a frame of mind. And that's what I learned from him. Mm -hmm. Like entrepreneurship and or a friend of mine called me an intrapreneur, which means being an entrepreneur inside other organizations. Uh, but if that's a friend of mine called me that, but uh, I think that's what I learned from Pat. And then I always stayed that way where I always wanted to be someplace where I felt like I was going to learn more, yeah. do more and have an impact. And I learned that from being Pat's special assistant and, you know, getting to sit next to brilliance and greatness that, you know, I was just fortunate, very lucky. But yeah, that's what I learned. I mean, leader, so the leaders, you know, I, I, I think you can draw a line and see connectivity. So like I see a lot of similarities between Mike and Mike Bloomberg and Pat, even though they're completely different, just in the way they think and operate. A lot of similarities between Bill Gates and, and Mike. I was fortunate enough to work um, directly with Bill, a couple of times right before it was right when he was leaving Microsoft, but I got a couple of opportunities to work with him directly, which I never thought I didn't go there to do that, but I just was able to because the gentleman who recruited me, Larry Cohen, who was the head of comms there, and he's now Bill's chief of staff, he plays a very similar role in Bill's world that Kevin does in Mike's world. Um, you know, said, You can do this, I need you to do this. And he had me, I was actually did some work directly with Bill, got to know, brief, talk to him, sit on and stuff. So I think there's just this curiosity and intellect that I've seen with leaders that have always attracted me to being and working there. And I'll never forget my first encounter with Bill Gates uh, in his office. And um, he had no idea who I was or what I was doing there other than Larry had brought me. I remember saying something because it was awkwardly silent in the room because you know the book Outliers. So I was, so that was one of the things I got to work on with Bill. I actually briefed him and sat next to him while he gave that interview. I love that book because it's really interesting, but I love that book because there's a whole Bill Gates part where I was literally sitting next to him while he was giving that interview to Malcolm Gladwell. So it was pretty cool. But I remember he, Malcolm was late and it was completely awkward and no one was saying anything. And I just blurted out something. I don't know what I said, just to like break the ice because it was driving me crazy. And he just looked at me like, who are you? Why are you talking in my presence? <laughs> and, I, and I remembered that look. And then he asked me a question because I had written the briefing. And I just remembered, I was like, my mind went back to working for Moynihan. Yeah. And I was like, I got this. I know exactly where this is going. He wants to know 
if I'm smart enough and have any great and I can handle it and I should be in the room with it. And so he drilled me on like four or five questions. And as soon as I was done, he like completely he chilled out. He was yeah. he was awesome. We had some we had a lot of fun. It was blah, blah, blah. But so like I've been able to sort of take lessons and, and sort of apply them forward. But that's what I would say from leadership. It's like intellectual curiosity and this sense of entrepreneurship, right, where you're always looking to do or more and see more. And ladies and gentlemen, again, today on the caring economy, we have Michael Marinello with us. He is a chief communications officer for Aon, the big British American financial service giant. He's also a rock and roll cover brand star. Tell us a little bit more about your role at Aon. What does comms mean in a big multinational like that? Well, just, just to be sure, because if my boss is ever listening or watching, I'm, my actual role is head of global communications and content, which yeah. is, you know, you can make the equivalency, but it's head of communications and content. It's been, it's been a, a, you know, just a great, you know, couple of years at and I started as a consultant, sort of very similar path in my career, Toby, you come in as a consultant, they ask you to come on board, like uh, but it's been great because they, they brought me in to really change the way the firm goes to market from a communications perspective. Mm -hmm. And Andy Weitz leads uh, the organization. He's the CMO and has really done an amazing <clears throat> job over his tenure in changing the way Aon thinks about itself and goes to market from a marketing perspective and as a brand perspective. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what Andy realized was that, I don't want to speak for him, but, but I think why, why I'm there is that the second sort of, you know, hill to climb after that was how do we communicate and what's the story behind the firm and how do we you know present ourselves and what's our story and that's why you know that's what it means to that's what it means to aon right communications so i run communications and content which you know you would say is basically perhaps maybe like the voice of the firm and how we show up where we show up you know what we're saying about ourselves what we're saying about and to our colleagues what we're saying about what we bring to our clients and then where we show up is what it's all about and we're in the process of changing that so you know, the communications right now at the firm is is helping with this change management of just the firm in general and evolving into the new world and, and sort of the new and sort of the place the firm wants to go. That's what it means for the firm. And I think it's important because what we've done is really changed the dynamic with all the craziness in the news cycle right now and how fractured the media is. Um, what we've really done is flip the dynamic and not only become our own creators and publishers, but controlling the distribution. Right. And that's what we do from a comms and content standpoint is really have have really acute understanding of our distribution, who we're communicating to, why and how and what's the impact. How do we change that if necessary? Yeah. I, I, and I note, at least on your site currently, I think your purpose is we shape decisions for the better to protect and enrich the lives of people around the world. We believe that businesses thrive when the communities they serve and the people they employ also flourish. You can control your message and the distribution, but still things get out and, and into others' hands that aren't necessarily your stakeholders. But how do you deal with detractors in this highly politicized world in which we live now, where you know one person could say that it's not the role of a business to care about X, Y, and Z or ESG, and then you do. So how do you avoid getting into the fray there? One of the great things about the firm is that you know, we have an amazing CEO in Greg Case, who's been with the firm for 15 plus years and as CEO. And so this, the firm has a strong personality and sense of who it is. It's now really just communicating that more broadly. So we stay in our lane, right? And I think that's the easiest way to sum it up. You know, I had this great conversation when we were together in Utah with the woman who runs comms for Levi's. And yeah. we were talking and I said, you know, we're not Levi's, right? We, 
you know, what she was saying to me, appropriate for them to be out speaking on the things they speak to because it's their employee base and it's who they're selling to. And so they know their lane and it's a, and it's a very, and it's knowing our lane and knowing that, you know, we're in 120 countries with 50,000 employees, right? We serve almost, you know, everybody could or can be a client. And so you have to be really in tune to who you are as a firm and what your role is and what your place is in the marketplace to make sure that the things you're doing and saying have weight and make sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, so that's how we, like I said, at the end of the day, we stay in our lane. Yeah. Right. And understanding what that is. And, you know, you step out of it a little bit, you know, once in a while when we know we should or can, or feel comfortable yeah. that it's the right way to go. There's nothing wrong with incremental gain. If it's, if there's a goal at the end of it. Right. Yeah. So, so let's think about some of the issues of the day, whether it's social justice in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murder or the impact of COVID and the pandemic or uh, hashtag me too movement. How, how do those issues get addressed internally as well as externally for Aon? Any one of them? Well, I, think what we, I think what we've learned in the sort of this era of social upheaval is that, you know, we really we need to be thinking about our colleagues as much as our clients in this situation and the general public. And so we always look at how are these things, we look at both, right? And that's how, so there's no playbook other than let's look at how these issues are affecting our clients, how they're affecting our colleagues and how they might affect, you know, what we're supposed to do as a firm. And we come up with, you know, there is, again, there's no playbook for these times right now. It's just incredibly volatile and incredibly, you know, anything can happen, whether it's weather or geopolitical or any time societal. So we really, you know, we have a, I think, you know, we have a great sense of who we are as a firm. And then when, when any of these things happen, um, you know, we come together and look at those three areas and say, what's the appropriate way for us to respond? Yeah. And there is no one size fits all. And I think we're also learned from our colleagues, certain examples, some of the issues based on just how the firm works and the culture of the firm, some of these examples, which might feel like we need to say something much bigger, actually are best handled locally and yeah. then shared broadly with how we handled them locally, as opposed to making everything firm-wide all the time. I, I share that approach or that view on that approach. And I wonder also in my writing and in my show, I, I actually think that way forward, the best training, the best solution is exercising these these muscles and these skills that we have as communicators uh, with the various issues that we do. So whether it's ESG, sustainability, accessibility, the more you're regularly asking yourself as a brand, as an employee, how can we be better at this? What what do we need to understand here? The better prepared will be for any incoming, whether it's you know a disaster relief effort or you know, another horrible police, uh, another shooting, or, you know, there's, you're right, there's, you can never anticipate the exact next crisis when it's come, but if you have your employees, particularly your comms people, thinking about and exercising that part of the brain that says, all right, the who, what, when, where, why of uh, mapping out a crisis, that is an exercise that you get better and better, better at, frankly, by doing it. Uh, Absolutely. And I think too, you know, understanding the different nuances and the ways to communicate and whom to communicate and the different feedback mechanisms that help, you know, we're learning on a daily basis, like what different, you know, what things are working, what things aren't working, you know, we are, and I've always been heavily reliant on data and analytics to show not just output of communications, but impact. 
And so we, you know, we had we do pulse surveys all the time with our colleague base. We do, you know, quarterly surveys, you know, into the marketplace about how our messages are resonating. We do weekly analysis of how our content's performing. So mm -hmm. I think if you have, and you know, I've always sort of been data driven. Although working for Mike made it, you know, essential just in my day. You know, he always used to say, if you can't, well, he still does. You can't if you can't, you can't measure man. it, you can't manage it, right? And, and, you know, that's the truth. There's no, there's no more, there's nothing more truer than that. So if, if you don't know what you're trying to achieve, how can, how do you know you're achieving it? I know there are a lot of turnkey solutions out there, but I think most brands are still challenged to try and find ways to, to succeed in measuring and monitoring what they're doing, their messaging. Well, I think, yeah. And I think the whole thing is understanding like what's the impact you're trying to have. And then how do you measure whether that impact is happening? Yeah. And, and I think, and that sounds really simplistic. It is and it isn't. I mean, the challenge I've always had is with both, you know, the places I've worked, my teams and in the whatever platforms or vendors you're using is that I know what I need, right, to measure. So I need you to help me measure it. Yeah. I don't need you to tell me, right? I know what I'm measuring and I know what I want. And I think having that frame of mind helps, if that makes sense. I'm reminded also, uh, I just got an email today from Kyle Dopp at Morning Consult, and uh, they excel at that. So covered a lot already. Uh, two last questions for you, Mike. One sure. is uh, words of wisdom for either young professionals starting out, college kids, maybe Lehigh graduates this year, or even more senior professionals who perhaps have been disrupted or feeling stuck in their career. And the other is uh, when your next gig is. So go ahead with the yeah. first. <laughs> so next gig is October 21st at Connolly's at Times Square at 8.30. So they're $10 at the door. Advice though, I think my the experience I will share is twofold. I think one, I just always was never afraid to try something new. I was never afraid of failing because as, what did Edison say? I didn't fail to make a light bulb 99 ways. I found 99 ways not to make a light bulb, right? Tell how you take it. So I've always never been afraid of sort of not succeeding right away because I, I just feel like the experience is better and more worth it than, you know, um, I was, I, speaking of Lehigh University, I, I, they have this mountaintop campus where it's this interdisciplinary learning and I'm an innovator in residence there. And I go and I speak to the, the, the students about once a quarter and they ask me what failure looked like, right? They, they were having a similar conversation about your career and blah, blah, blah. And they said to me, what does failure look like to you? And I said, failure to me is um, not trying. Trying, absolutely. Not trying. So failure to me is not trying. I tell my kids this. I have two teenage boys. I don't care if they don't succeed in the way that they want to. What I care about is they don't try. Yeah. Right. I trying agree. to me, not trying to me is failure. So that's that would be my counsel. Yep. You know, if you're looking to do something new, then try it. What's the worst thing that can happen? It doesn't work out. But guess what? You realize that that's not it didn't work out. You didn't fail. It just didn't work out. And that's also, I think, in the same school of thinking as those great leaders we've talked about today from Moynihan to Bloomberg to Shiki. So Mike Marinello, thank you so much for joining us on The Caring Economy. I'm going to come see you in Times Square this fall. I'm going to bring awesome. some mutual friends along. Again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Toby. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.